0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. Door-to-balloon time for a patient with ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, or STEMI, should be less than 90 minutes, as short as possible, in order to save muscle. Wireless electrocardiography, or EKG, programs across the country are helping to reduce door-to-balloon time by transmitting those data to hospitals via broadband internet. What are some of the challenges and advantages of such programs? Our guests today are Mr. Jim Shulin, Chief Administrative Officer for the Johns Hopkins Department of Emergency Medicine and President of Johns Hopkins Emergency Medical Services, and Dr. Jeffrey Trost, Assistant Professor in Cardiology, Director of the Cardiac Cath Lab, and Director of the Interventional Cardiology Program at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. Welcome to you both.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: I'll start with you and I'll use first names, Jeff. So clinical and research experience have shown us that the faster the STEMI patients get appropriate treatment, the shorter that door to balloon or door to intervention time, the more likely they are to save heart muscle. Can you set the scene for us and sort of break into pieces how you approach shortening up that door to balloon time?
2: Sure, Janet, thank you for having me. As you know, basically patients who have chest pain and who ultimately are diagnosed with a heart attack, there are a lot of steps involved to make the diagnosis and to deliver timely treatment. Uh, It starts, obviously, with the patient being able to recognize that they're having symptoms that are concerning, and then basically activating EMS, or uh, in about 40 to 50% of patients driving themselves or having someone drive them to the nearest hospital for evaluation. From that point on, there are other steps, which include, obviously, the patient being recognized as having symptoms of MI at the medical center, having the EKG done, having it read by a physician, having the physician recognize that this is a heart attack, and then basically figuring out some way to deliver treatment, whether it be giving thrombolytic therapy or if the hospital is capable of performing primary angioplasty, activating the cardiac catheterization lab and, and delivering the patient to the cath lab for treatment. And so if you break down all the number of steps that it takes from the time the patient actually is recognizing that they're having symptoms of a heart attack to the time that basically they have their artery opened via either thrombolytic or angioplasty therapy, you can break things down into various elements. What we at Hopkins decided to do was to obviously we couldn't control the time at which it takes from the patient recognizing their symptoms to calling EMS. We could control were the various time points when the patient basically arrived at our door to the time that they received reperfusion therapy. So we broke down those times into basically the patient arrival to the time the patient received an EKG, the time from the EKG being read and the cath lab being activated, the time at which basically the patient got transferred to the cath lab, and the time at which the patient's primary angioplastic procedure begun to the balloon time, and all those things in summary, are the various components that comprise the door to balloon time that you mentioned at the beginning of your show. What we came to appreciate was that time period before the patient hits the door is just as important and just as critical to be shortened and to allow the team that's taking care of that patient to get on the road as quickly as possible. And therefore, that's how basically the initiative to have a partnership with the EMS folks in Baltimore City and Baltimore County began because those are the first responders and can give us the first heads up that we need to be able to treat those patients uh, efficiently.
0: So, Jeff, I love the way you said heads up, because what you're really doing is driving much further upstream the opportunity to diagnose a myocardial infarction and activate the relevant team members. Exactly. So, I wonder if you'd spend a moment talking to me about that team, all from the 911 call to, let's say, arrival at the door of the hospital.
2: Sure, so remember that a lot of things are set in motion once basically a patient is recognized to have a heart attack, whether it be in the field or in the ED. The first is obviously a phone call from either the EMS folks or the ED, the person who recognizes that the EKG is abnormal. There's a central phone call to what's called the Hopkins Access Line, a central operator that is standing by 24 hours, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, to be able to then send out a what we call a blast or batch page to all members of the heart attack team, as we've named it here at Hopkins. That heart attack team consists of, obviously, an interventional cardiology physician. We also have health staff training programs. So That page goes to an interventional cardiology fellow, someone training to be an interventional cardiologist, a cath lab nurse a cath lab radiology technician, the person who essentially drives the radiology machine in the cath lab. And then finally, we have a cardiovascular technologist who helps monitor the patient. In addition to that, we also have essentially a secondary team, if you will, and I may hesitate to use the word secondary because they're just as important as the primary team who's taking care of folks in the cath lab. But we also have a transition team that we've named the bridge team that occurs in various aspects of the Hopkins system. Remember that we have three different hospitals in the Hopkins umbrella, actually now four, that uh, all have a similar system in place to get the patient from the emergency room to the cath lab while that primary team that I just mentioned is en route. So I'm basically making the assumption that the primary team is being called from somewhere after hours from home where obviously if it's during regular cath lab hours in the hospital. There are a lot of elements at play, a lot of people who are called when a heart attack is recognized, again, either in the field or in the emergency room. And those are just some of the folks that that are involved in the process.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guests today are Mr. Jim Shulin. He's Chief Administrative Officer for Johns Hopkins Department of Emergency Medicine and President of Johns Hopkins Emergency Medical Services. Also, Dr. Jeffrey Trost, Assistant Professor in Cardiology. He's Director of the Cardiac Cath Lab and Director of the Interventional Cardiology Program at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. We're talking about wireless EKG programs, reducing the door-to-balloon time for patients in the midst of a heart attack. Mr. Shulin, GM, I want to turn to you. In your role as president of the Hopkins Emergency Medical Services, how did you get interested in wireless EKG technology? What's it going to do for patients?
1: Well, you know, uh, Janet, as Jeff said earlier, the issue of time to treatment for patients having uh, myocardial infarction is one of the few things in medicine these days that it seems like everybody agrees on. So everybody is very laser-focused on doing everything we can to minimize the time it takes to get the patient to the ultimate treatment. So as we did a process analysis of how we treated the patients, as Jeff said, the sort of a big glaring opportunity was, well, gee, you know, during the transport time that the patient's coming to the hospital, there's a period of dead time that we ought to be able to make use of. We became aware of the technology where the high-quality 12-lead EKG could be transmitted and thought this would be a great opportunity for us to begin to move the process, as you called it, upstream. So, you know, once we decided that that was uh, something we wanted to look into, we thought about how we wanted to go about doing it. When we looked around the country and even this area, what we found was that communities were doing this, but in sort of a piecemeal fashion. So, for an example, an emergency department somewhere would say, well, I know that ambulance number one and ambulance number two and ambulance number three bring patients to me, so I'm gonna buy the equipment for ambulance number one, ambulance number two, ambulance number three, and and forget the rest somebody else can worry about everybody else. We decided to take a little bit of a different tack and say, gee, you know, this is really a community health issue and we probably ought to try to address the entire community if we possibly could. At the same time when we went to the Baltimore City Fire Department who runs our EMS group here They basically told us, look, these are tough economic times, and we can't afford to equip our units with transmitting devices. So again, rather than address it in a piecemeal fashion, we pulled together a group of hospitals in the area, all of whom were likely to be taking care of the patients who were having the STEMIs, and we said, look, this is not an area where we need to be competing for patients. This is an area where we need to be cooperating to make sure we hit a time target, and everybody agreed. And so, really, it was nice to see that everybody rallied around uh, sort of the central call for let's do the right thing for patients having a heart attack.
0: Really wonderful. I can imagine you faced a number of challenges in putting together the consortium, working your way. Can you share with us what lessons you learned there?
1: (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh, so you tried to herd cats before, huh? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it, it actually, to be very honest with you, because everybody... This was like motherhood and apple pie, quite honestly. Right. Everybody just agreed that this was a good and right thing to do. And so really then it was just a matter of navigating the systems within each hospital to come to agreement, first of all, that was easy. Then there was the writing of the memorandum of understanding that all of the legal offices and all of the various hospitals had to sign off on. So it was a matter of you know making sure everybody was comfortable with the language and the agreements that we had and that sort of thing and then going through the purchasing process at each one of the hospitals. So it was it was sort of tedious, but since there was just such uniform agreement that this was the right thing to do and everybody was so on board so quickly, eh, it was tedious, but the process was actually very manageable.
0: Well, I think you're probably a master diplomat, and congratulations. <laughs> Jeff, what's been the response of the docs and the medical staff and the technical and clinical staff to this?
2: I think mostly positive. You know, I think relevant to your question about challenges, I think one of the clinical challenges inherent with any physician, uh, non-physician relationship is with this system of allowing EMS folks essentially to activate the heart attack team in the field. There has to be some level of training and trust, so to speak, in terms of their ability to make the diagnosis in the field. So it was very important for the physicians particularly to make sure that uh, EMS folks were appropriately trained in terms of EKG recognition to try to eliminate the kind of false positive cry wolf phenomenon of having basically every patient in the field with chest pain having an EKG and having a heart attack team activation. As you can imagine, there's always a potential for call-in fatigue when it comes to these types of systems. But the Baltimore EMS and the EMS of our other outlying hospitals in Howard County have been terrific in partnering with us to basically uh, engage in training. And what we've seen the bottom line is that our door-to-balloon times have been impressively lower in patients who have EMS field-activated EKGs versus those that don't. And we see that every week that we have patients where EMS is activating these folks. And that ultimately is, I think, the biggest persuader for physicians and our clinical staff is the fact that patients are getting care quicker.
0: How rewarding for all of your team members to see those times drop so dramatically.
2: Absolutely. And we all know, as Jim said, that time to treatment is the most important thing that is correlates best with patient outcome. And we're seeing better time to treatments with every activation from the field. And that's a terrific thing. And if I could jump in, if you don't
1: mind, one sort of sidebar to that is that in the past, when you couldn't transmit a high-quality, a 12-lead EKG, if you did want to activate your heart attack team on the basis of a field EKG read, you were really taking a leap of faith. But now at least folks have an opportunity to see what the paramedics in the field are seeing and can make their own judgments as well. You know, the physicians in the hospital can make their own judgments as well. So, So really what this tells me, and honestly I haven't thought about this much until right now, is that We in the medical field, I think, all know that it's pretty dangerous to drive yourself to a hospital when you're having chest pain. Probably not the ideal way to go. And now, with this technology, this makes it even more important and potentially a public health initiative, frankly, that we ought to be getting out in front of patients saying, you know, if you have chest pain, you should activate your 911 system, and that could actually get you into treatment faster and give you better outcomes.
0: Do you see in the future a way for a patient to actually capture this information? Would you think the technology will get there so that just as we've begun to distribute defibrillators, will we reach time where a patient could actually trigger an EKG from home?
2: John, I'm not exquisitely familiar with the technology, but I do recall seeing recently some preliminary results. I believe it was on the heart.org, some preliminary results of a type of device that was actually implantable in high-risk patients specifically looking for high-risk patients for heart attack and whether, you know, that would be something that, again, could be a viable technology for high-risk patients for MI. So, I don't think it's that far-fetched. In fact, what I would say is that certainly extending that to folks who already have pacemakers or defibrillators, perhaps designing them with some sort of capability to recognize ST-segment deviation is probably not far away again, if we're going to take this to its logical extreme, I think your thinking is right on. And that is to say, there's a certain segment of the population that's very high risk for recurrent heart attacks. And that's a technology that needs to be looked at very closely.
0: Well, congratulations on your great work. We've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey Trost and Mr. Jim Shulin about wireless EKG programs that are reducing door-to-balloon time for STEMI patients. Jim and Jeffrey, thank you so much for being our guest this week on Heart Matters.
1: A pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.